Good morning. It's Thursday, July 8th. I'm Duarte Geraldino. Shemitah Basu is off. This is Apple News Today. Each morning, hear about some of the most fascinating stories in the news and how the world's best journalists are covering them. It's the ultimate trophy for a billionaire, a professional sports franchise. But a new story from ProPublica finds owning a team is also a powerful tool to legally avoid taxes. This is the latest installment in a special investigative reporting series called The Secret IRS Files. Justin Elliott is one of the reporters on this investigation. Justin, thanks for joining us. Yeah, good to be here. What is it that these billionaires are doing and how much are they getting away with? Yeah, so you might think of uh, billionaires uh, owning a sports team as as kind of like a trophy asset or a retirement hobby. Uh, But what we found is that Owning a team also comes with massive tax benefits. The billionaires who often own uh, big league teams can use their ownership of those teams to save tens or hundreds of millions of dollars on their taxes. The present reality of this goes back many decades. There's been fights for years between uh, team owners and the IRS about whether and how they should be allowed to write off the value of teams uh, on their taxes. There's a a famous mid-20th century Major League Baseball owner, Bill Veck, who pioneered these strategies. He actually had this famous quip where he said, we play the star-spangled banner before every game. You want us to pay income taxes too? You describe sports teams as monopolies. How so? I mean, how does the fact that they're monopolies help them avoid taxes? The tax provision that sports owners can take advantage of basically works like this. When you buy a team for, say, a billion or a couple billion dollars, you're then allowed to take the price you paid for the team and over time deduct that from your taxes, uh, which cancels out profits and saves you a lot of money. The original idea behind that provision in the tax code was that buying a bundle of assets that make up a team is something like buying a, a factory machine or a car that actually degrades over time and loses value over time. But the reality is in professional sports, players don't have anywhere else to play. Uh, TV stations have to come to the league uh, to air the games. And so the value of these teams over time has actually been going steadily up, not going down, even though the tax code allows you to treat the team like a factory machine that's losing value over time. So this is a legitimate way that they are, as you say, gaming the system. But what are the consequences? I mean, how much money is slipping through the fingers of our tax collectors? Yeah, so one of the consequences is that we looked at a set of billionaire sports owners and found that pretty consistently, they actually pay lower effective tax rates than the millionaire players that are playing on the teams. And sometimes the billionaire owners even pay lower rates than stadium workers who are working for them. And that's in part because of this tax break. So it sort of upends the idea that we have a progressive tax system in which the more money you make, the higher rate you're going to have to pay to the government. When it comes to the ultra wealthy and in particular sports owners, it it just doesn't work like that. So in terms of percentages, how much do the billionaire owners pay versus, you know, the people who are selling hot dogs or these millionaire players who are throwing the balls in the hoops? What are the differences we're talking about? So there's some variance. I mean, we looked at Steve Ballmer, for example, the former uh, Microsoft CEO who owns the Los Angeles Clippers. 
And in, in one year, he had around $700 million in income, and his effective federal tax rate was just 12%. If you compare him to LeBron James, who's doing quite well himself, made $120 million around that year. LeBron James paid around 36% compared to Bomber's 12%. And then we profiled a stadium worker at Staples Center in Los Angeles who paid uh, 14% on around $45,000 in income. So the worker at Staples Center actually paying a higher rate than Steve Ballmer because of the various ways in which the tax code favors the ultra-wealthy. You're right in recent history. Congress has been involved in this several times. How did that play out? You know, the rules, the quite complicated rules around uh, depreciation um, have changed a lot over time. And the current world we're living in, at least when it comes to sports teams, uh, is actually the product of lobbying. Uh, Major League Baseball, back during the George W. Bush years, lobbied to get sports teams eligible for the current depreciation regime, which, which lets you write off the price you paid for a team or, or the vast majority of that price over a 15-year period. So these these rules are not set in stone and they don't sort of fall from the sky. Uh, they're, you know, actively shaped, in, in this case, by the industry itself. Justin Elliott is a reporter at ProPublica. The series is The Secret IRS Files. The article is The Billionaire Playbook. You can get the link on our show notes page. Justin, thank you so much for being on Apple News today. Thanks so much. We've hit another dark COVID milestone. Around the world, more than 4 million people have now died of COVID-19. And the super contagious Delta variant is tearing through the U.S. right now. Unvaccinated people are in special danger. They're the most likely to end up in the hospital with severe COVID. And many of these unvaccinated people live in rural, deeply conservative pockets of the U.S. They live in places that voted overwhelmingly for Donald Trump. Bloomberg News went to Missouri to look into why it's so hard to get Trump country vaccinated. National vaccination rates tend to mask the severity of this problem. Bloomberg's vaccine tracker shows about 67% of adults in the U.S. got at least one shot. But in the southern Missouri County Bloomberg focused on, it's only 47%. It's even lower in more rural communities. A big reason seems to be a lack of trust in science, health institutions, and government. People in rural counties, historically, did not have the best access to health care. And some of the people who live there are suspicious about taking medical advice. Add to that all the false information that's flooding social media. And it's easy to see how big this problem is. Doctors and nurses in the front lines tell Bloomberg, some people doubt the seriousness of COVID-19. Outbreaks in New York and California, they were perceived as more serious than the one in Missouri. But... Things are changing now, especially because so many people are still unvaccinated. Back in February, a major Missouri hospital closed a special COVID-19 unit. It's now back open and filling up. Doctors there are bracing for a major spike in cases in the next few weeks. There's this Chicago ornithologist who has been collecting and cataloging dead birds for decades. He now has more than 100,000 of them. An analysis of these dead birds has led to a surprising discovery. In recent years, birds have been steadily getting smaller. New research suggests over time, 
climate change is causing some animals to shrink. Vox is bringing us this reporting, which looks at ongoing research in the connections between temperature and body size. There's this long-standing principle of ecology, and it holds creatures will be smaller in warmer climates and bigger where it's cold. Scientists are finding it's not just birds that are shrinking. Other studies found similar patterns in deer, rodents, and insects. Now, there are some exceptions to this trend, and there's a lot researchers are still trying to figure out. But this new discovery, shrinking animals, has scientists worried. If different species change shape at different rates, it could mess up delicate food chains. Size can impact survival and the ability to breed. This is all concerning because these changes may push some species closer to extinction. It's an extremely common thing these days, and plenty of them typically happen in the summer. But this year, you've got all those weddings that were postponed from last year. Couples, they even started sending out change-the-date cards to announce rescheduled events. Washington Post lifestyle reporter Ashley Fetters looks at how this nuptial boom is getting to be a little bit too much for some people. She spoke to several folks in their late 20s whose summer weekends have been locked up by wedlock. Some of these people have eight or ten weddings to attend, not to mention bachelor and bachelorette parties, dress fittings, bridal showers. It's all a lot. And their feelings are pretty similar. People were initially happy to be hanging out, excited to see their friends and family finally tying the knot. But at this point, invitations are piling up, travel and dry cleaning bills are going through the roof. And now so many of their weekends are spent at wedding after wedding that seem to be all so eerily similar. You know, drunken uncles, cousins, gut-busting buffets, and DJs who are still playing the electric slide. I, I sort of love that song, but that's just me. Fetters explains, single people are overwhelmed by the current wedding frenzy and are now rethinking how they might marry someday. One guy is vowing to pick a location that's easy for a majority of guests to get to. And one woman says, when it's her time, she's thinking she'll just invite some friends to the backyard and call it a day. You can find all these stories and more in the Apple News app. And while you're there, check out some of our audio stories. We'll talk to you again tomorrow.